Hey everyone, I'm Alex Cantor. And I'm Lily Rosenthal. Welcome to our podcast, Hot Pastrami. We are coming to you from our favorite booth at Cantor's Deli here in LA. We're going to invite some of our friends to join us for a chat over some matzo ball soup and pastrami sandwiches. So join us for new episodes of Hot Pastrami every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you soon. Bye. everybody. Welcome to Profoundly Pointless. My name is Nick. Coming up in this episode, we're going to talk about exorcism and the things that scare us the most. There's stages of demonic attack. There's actually four stages that we use in my, in my model. She was perhaps the most severe I've seen in a long time. Uh, it, it, it was absolutely a nightmarish experience for everybody as long as someone believes them they exist and as long as someone believes that exorcism is what heals them exorcism is real i have to stay positive because if i actually think about what i'm doing i i I probably will just cry there isn't a difference between a water slide and a slip and slide a slip and slide can be a water slide but a water slide isn't necessarily a slip and slide I want to thank you guys so much for joining us. If you get a chance, like, download, subscribe, share. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. I want to get right to our first guest. He's an exorcist who's done more than 100 exorcisms. This is Brian D. Wallet of the Nicolaian Catholic Church. How did you become an exorcist? Well, you know... It was out of necessity, really. I started a ministry many, many years ago, and uh, finding my place within ministry, I found myself running a very, very small, independent Catholic church. Uh, people were coming to us looking for help with spiritual problems that they needed resolved, things that they had gone to their pastors and received no help, or they tried the conventional Roman Catholic Church and did not get um, the help that they were seeking. And so they were desperate and looking for anybody that could at least, you know, look into what their problems were and seeing if there's something within the the realm of the church that could be utilized to resolve it for them. And so as this started to develop and sort of snowball into a larger and bigger thing, we realized that we needed to divert most of our attention away from our previous activities and and focus more on this new need that had been recently presented to us. So when you talk about an exorcism, my mindset, of course, my knowledge of it is from movies. It You're getting a demon out of somebody? Like what is what is happening? Well, I mean, there's different schools of thought on exactly what metaphysically is occurring. Um, I tend to differ with most of my peers on that. You know, we're, we're talking about something like a, a presence that is inside one's body and needs to be ejected from that body. I think that's sort of a, sort of a, I mean, it's a traditional way of looking at it, but I don't think it's metaphysically very accurate. Really what we're dealing with is, I try to, explain it to people this way. These things are frequencies. It's frequencies of energy. Okay. And, and we operate at a, at a frequency of our own. 
And when you're compatible with something, it's a similar frequency. So what we call in the Christian tradition or the Judeo-Christian tradition a, a demon is something that operates on a very uh, different frequency than – and so the demonic obviously resonates at that unhealthy level, which is not compatible with good human health, both physically as well as uh, emotionally and, um, and mentally. And so really what you're doing in an exorcism metaphysically is you're replacing that negative vibration with something that resonates higher on a healthier level. That's really what you're doing. You're not purging anything. Now, there, a lot of my peers are going to balk at that explanation, but I've been doing this quite for quite some time. Um, I tend to have a more of a uh, – of a. I try to take a more – pragmatic approach to this work and not get lost in my worldviews or, or the limitations of the of the Christian box that we sometimes put ourselves in as as pastors or priests. When you talk about it, it, it using that kind of terminology, can you substitute in different words like use demon for frequency or devil for frequency and it's kind of the same thing? You're just talking about it a different way, or is are you looking at it in a completely different manner altogether? I mean, I would I would substitute them, yeah. But I mean, bear in mind, I would also consider human beings to be the same thing too. So just because something's a frequency doesn't mean it's it's not sentient. That do uh, have the ability. There is intellect there, at least on some level. Um, you know what we would consider to be intellect. In some cases, a very high functioning intellect. So when you perform one, what are you doing? Like walk me through the steps of one that kind of stands out to you. Well, in a conventional um, textbook exorcism, let's you know, let's just go all the way. There's several different types of exorcism. Of course, there's there's minor exorcisms. There's a, there's a very large range of minor exorcisms. Actually, some that even the laity are authorized to perform. Um, but you know, most people, when you're talking about exorcism, they're thinking about again, like the movies, The Exorcist, um, uh, Anthony Hopkins in the right, you know, they're thinking more of, you know, full-blown possession and the full solemn rite of exorcism, which is what most people are familiar with from the movies. So in that case, if we're using that as an example, what you are essentially doing is you're preparing, uh, which is an ancient rite of the church, something that goes back, you know, hundreds of years, thousands of years, really, but of course, in, in its current formal form, it's, it's, it's several hundred years old. Um, but overall, it's a rite of prayers and invocations of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, uh, in which case it attacks the, the malignancy, the spiritual malignancy that, that uh, is uh, interfering with the normal operation of that individual. And I think it's really important for people to understand about exorcism uh, is that, you know, the ancients did not differentiate the mind and the spirit. In fact, they were one and the same thing. You can even see that in the meanings of the words, you know, going back to the ancient Greek from where we get some of these words like spirit. Um, it really was an extension of the mind. They didn't see a difference, and I don't either. I don't, I don't think there is a difference between mind and spirit. I really think that the neurological system that we consider to be, you know, our brain function is really more or less an antenna, a receptor to, you know, processing signals that are happening cosmically all around us. And so essentially, I don't think there's, again, getting back to your previous question, if I may, for just a moment, I don't think there's really anything inside us to purge out. You know, I don't even think 
if we're going to define things in terms of a soul or a spirit, I would say there's really nothing, there's no soul or spirit within us. I would say there's a soul or spirit that projects us. With that in mind, going forward into what is exorcism, what's the right of exorcism, what you're really doing is using the archetypes of a healthy system, which is essentially, you know, to love each other as you love yourself and, and to love God. So what you're doing is you're taking that as an archetype and, and replacing it in a person's mind. Um, you're replacing something that's become malignant in their consciousness. So it's a very psychological process. You would say prayers in front of them or how does how, how do you kind of, I guess, adjust the frequency, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, it starts out with, I mean, the whole thing is really a prayer, um, but with very specific kinds of prayers, invocations in particular, as well as full-on assaults on that, again, that demonic presence that I would say is more accurately referred to as a malignant frequency. Um, And so by uh, the use of these prayers that are contained within the Roman ritual, you know, we slowly and and progressively move forward in the attempt to um, eliminate that presence from that person's life. And in addition to the prayers, there's also the sacramentals of the church that we utilize as well. Holy water, uh, exercised oil, um, exercised salt. Sometimes I'll even bring in the holy oils of, uh, that are that are uh, consecrated uh, at the Chrism Mass on Holy Thursday, um, which is um, Chrism and the oil of the sick. When you talk about the prayers, are these prayers that most people have kind of heard of? Hail Mary, Our Father. Or are they more geared towards specifically exorcisms? Well, the the exorcisms, the actual invocations within the rite are are not things that people would be familiar with. In fact, they would never say these prayers. It's They're reserved only for exorcists. Um, no one else would be authorized to even use them. But um, the larger majority of the rite includes psalms that everybody should be familiar with if they, you know, if they go to church and read their Bibles or, or pray the divine office. Um, they're the same psalms that, you know, are in, in every uh, um, book of uh, of. In every in every version of the Bible, a translation of the Bible, and uh, there's also um, yes, Hail Mary and Our Fathers. That's that those are par- that's part of the whole process, the whole rite. Um, so it's a it's it's a litany, you might say. It was a very specifically organized litany, a formal way of putting these prayers together that are very effective against that type of spiritual illness. How many of them have you performed? Oh, I've lost count. Um, I would say. Well, more than a hundred, um, somewhere between, probably somewhere between 150 and 200 at this point, maybe more. I've just lost count. <laughs> have now? Have you done more recently? Like, does this theme to be something that is happening more frequently? Is it going down? Is it staying the same? It fluctuates. There's an ebb and flow to it, um, and there's an ebb and flow within the year as well as there's an ebb and flow through periods of time. Um, we're, you know, we've been in a, in a uptick for the last several years, I would say it's increased, I would say, but again, it's hard for me to really assess that accurately because my exposure has become much greater in the last couple of years. And so, um, more people are familiar with who I am and the work that I do. And that could explain why, you know, these incidences are increasing. I think some of that also comes from the fact that, 
uh, people are more comfortable talking about it because some of these paranormal shows that you see on television are now addressing this. And uh, it's not such a taboo subject or something that is completely forbidden and, you know, just something that people don't like to talk about. I, I, I kind of like to compare um, demonic, you know, a, um, a demonic attack to a rape. You know, there was a time with rape that, you know, women in particular were just not comfortable talking about it. And so they weren't getting the help that they needed because it was a taboo subject and it was just this dark world that was occurring behind the scenes, right? In, really in front of everybody's face though and nothing was being done and then finally society said enough's enough and, and they took a proactive approach towards it. Now women are more comfortable coming forward with this and I think that's a good thing. That's good for society to make those kinds of you know, those, those, those transitions in thought and these paradigm shifts that are necessary from time to time. Demonic possession is the same kind of thing. It's a type of assault. Um, it's a violation of a person's spiritual rights. And, um, you know, it doesn't help you to not talk about it. It doesn't help you to pretend it didn't happen. It doesn't help you to be afraid to get help. And so now people are a little bit more comfortable. I wouldn't say we're, we've, we've made leaps and bounds. We haven't, but I would say more people are comfortable talking about it because it's been somewhat normalized in certain circles. How do you kind of make the determination that yes, this person needs an exorcism? Well, for many years, um, I never, I never advertised that this is something that we would, that we would handle. It just word got out. And so it was really through word of mouth or people in the know that would share it with somebody and they found out and they went for help and that kind of thing, again, snowballed into what it became. Now we have a, a larger presence. You know, people can come to our website and there's a place on there where you can click request an investigation. There's an intake form. They fill out the intake form that goes to my office. My office staff then review the cases. We look for particular things that are identifying markers for what we would say this is likely an authentic case. Um, and then we'll do some pre-assessment investigation. And then if we decide to take the case, then we go in and we, we work it until you know, we can get it resolved or at least get them in the, in, in the direction of, of healing. The indicators, what are the, some of the indicators? Well, um, you know, that's the challenge of this work. Um, but one of the things that we look for essentially is, is, you know, what types of disturbances they're reporting. In the early stages, there is literally no difference between mental illness, um, and, and spiritual illness. There's no difference. But there are differences in how you apply healing and you know, exorcism, exorcism ministry or exorcism in itself is not a replacement for conventional psychotherapy, psychotropic medication, basic psychiatry, or even medical intervention. Okay, it's not a replacement for that. So the first thing that we're looking for is, is this person already under medical care in some capacity, whether it be a psych psychological care, psychiatric care, or just general medical care? If they're not, then that's the first thing they need to do. We won't even really take their case um, if there's not at least a medical history there that we can look at and form as a basis for our discernment because most of these issues can be resolved with conventional treatment. Um, so a lot of the things, and there's stages of demonic attack. 
Okay, so there's like there's actually four stages that we use in my in my model for identification of of a of a demonic attack. And so the first stage, you wouldn't be able to really know any difference between, um, you know, just an anxiety problem or depression um, or something spiritual going on. So in those cases, it's it's best to just keep your spiritual life. Um, healthy, which means you know, doing the normal things that a normal Christian should do: go to church, um, pray frequently, and if you're feeling anxiety and depression, go and see a, a doctor. Don't come to an exorcist; go to see a doctor. And then in stage two, it starts to get more severe, but again, still not completely different from mental illness. So that's where you start to see suicidal ideation, night terrors, nightmares, anxiety, uh, loss of reality. These are things that are all very familiar to anybody that that um, works within clinical psychology. But if it's a spiritual causation, then it's demonic obsession. We would call that demonic obsession. And then it can lead into, if it's not treated into, demonic oppression. That's when you start to see physical illnesses that traditional treatment does not resolve. And that's the big factor for us. If they have a long medical history or psychiatric history and nothing is working and you talk to the doctor, you talk to the psychiatrist, you talk to their counselor, and they say they've done this, 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 and this, and they don't know where else, what else to do because nothing seems to work, and then you have some of the other identifying markers of – of the demonic event, that's when you start to take it more seriously and say, okay, now we need to look at spiritual solutions because the conventional ones are not helping. Um, and so you might say, well, what exactly are those demonic markers? Well, those are the things that are not clearly um, they're, they're, they're not they're not they're not clearly falling under the umbrella of conventional of, of a conventional illness. like, for example, these are more of the exaggerated forms, the more rare ones, but they are ones that are typical to possession and because possession in itself is rare. Um, the ability to speak in languages that you've never studied, you know, that's something that the conventional arena of, 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 of the medical field would not have a good explanation for how that happens. Um, Superhuman strength. Now you might say that's adrenaline, but you know I've seen a twelve-year-old girl knock, you know, um, six two hundred-plus-pound guys off of her with one with one push. You know, I've I've seen things that even adrenaline would have you'd have a hard time explaining it in that context. Um, there's also clairvoyance and clairaudience, you know, the ability to know things about somebody that you've never met. How would you have that information? What kind of psychological or scientific explanation can we derive from a person having knowledge about something that only you know, and yet they know it now? as if it's been revealed somehow, or they hear conversations that they're not privy to. You, you know, I've, I've, there are situations where the exorcist and, um, you know, our, our team, for example, would have a, 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 a briefing before we go in at another location, far, many miles away from the client, and then we would arrive there and the client would know everything we talked about. You know, that, that's kind of an example of clear audience. They, they somehow heard the conversation. Um, I've even seen their eyes change. And I, I don't mean this in some kind of vague sort of 
change in the way that their eyes look. I'm talking about I've seen pupils change from what is a standard human pupil to something that would be identical to something you'd see on a snake. You know, it's 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 a it's a very abrupt change and very shocking when you do witness it. There's also characteristically in every one of these cases a disdain for religious or blessed objects. And these are not people that are necessarily anti-Christians or they, they hate religion for some reason. There's a lot of people like that in the world. But this is a person who is usually a you know, in many cases, a believer in God, a believer in Jesus Christ, if they, you know, a, somebody who professes to be a Christian, sometimes even a a regular churchgoer, somebody that's at mass every Sunday, and now all of a sudden they have this complete disdain, almost an intolerance to being in the presence of religious articles like crucifixes or statues, icons of religious figures, that type of thing, um, even coming into church. It, it can seize them. We, we, you know, it's very common for we like to, you know, it's best to perform exorcisms on holy ground, and so it's it's best to bring them to a church to do this rather than to go to their home. And very often, the client will start to seize about fifteen minutes or ten minutes before reaching the house, the, the the church, and then when they arrive, they are completely stiff as a board and. In, in, in a complete um, stupor, where they they are com- un- they appear to be unconscious, they are completely stiff. You cannot move them, um, and you know just the idea or thought of going into the church causes this sort of seizure to happen. And then there's other things like odd, inappropriate behavior, and then there's really extraordinary things like levitation, bilocation, doppelgangers, mo- mo- you know, objects moving on their own, disturbances within the environment. Um, that's less, even less common than the other ones, but these are things that um, can happen and do happen during uh, genuine possession events. And I don't know any psycho- psychologist, psychiatrist, or medical doctor that could come up with a you know, a, a very good scientific explanation for why those things occur. That's really more in the realm of spirituality. Is there one that you did that really stands out in your mind? Oh, yes. I mean, there's there's a few actually, but there's, there's one in particular, one that really kind of upsets me because um, we were never really able to finish it. A lot of people think that exorcisms are like a one and done. Um, a lot of people come to us for help, and they expect me to just come in with a magic wand and say a few prayers, and you know their life goes back to normal. Exorcism is a process. It's a it's a it's a long process. It's just like trying to treat cancer. You know, you don't you don't just go into the doctor and take a pill and your cancer is gone. Um, Exorcism is the same way. It's a process, and you need. The, the client to be very cooperative and at the same time you have to persevere through it and so you know it's very rare to eliminate a demonic possession in one exorcism typically it takes several it can go on for days weeks months or even years in some cases um so this particular one was a very challenging one because there were several identify or, or i should say several different identities at work within this particular um victim and uh, so we were having to remove essentially one or two at a time over the course of several weeks to months 
And um, unfortunately, uh, she ended up returning to her home country, and the the, the political sit- uh, situation in that country destabilized, and she was not able to get back out. She was perhaps the most severe I've seen in a long time. Uh, it, it, it was absolutely a nightmarish experience for everybody. Uh, when you have a severe case like that, what's what's happening to them? They're slowly losing control of their thoughts and feelings and even their physical body. Um, you know, so it's, 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 I don't know what it's like to be possessed, but I can tell you from what I've seen objectively on the outside as an observer, it's terrifying. It must be absolutely terrifying. You must feel like you're losing all sense of control, uh, which is exactly what it is. I mean, it really is a, a yielding of, of our own, uh, concept of consciousness with a foreign consciousness. And that's got to be pure terror. Um, um, displays like the projectile pea soup, although I will say vomiting occurs in every exorcism. That's very typical, very normal. Um, but it's not like projectile pea soup. You know, heads are not spinning around several times. Um, you know, that sort of thing is exaggerated. But the overall basic display that you see in the movies is not terribly far off. How, do the, how does it happen to these people? Like, is, is it something unique about them like did they have an experience did they go to the wrong place like why why does it happen to these people could it can it happen to anybody it could in theory happen to everybody um but in in my assessment now this is a personal rather let's just call it a a personal contention based on experience and my own observations in the work uh it's typically spiritual weakness that is the, the the largest causation we now live in a world of spiritual apathy. You know, we have people that either completely reject the existence of God or the need or usefulness of the church. We have people that profess the Judeo-Christian worldview but do not do anything about it. They don't feel they need to go to church. They, 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 they call themselves, they say, I'm spiritual and not religious. You have people that will say things like, I don't need I don't need a church. I have a personal relationship at home. And yeah, you could say that, well, that's better than nothing. And I'm the first one to say, yeah, that's probably better than nothing. But is it sufficient? You know, in, in my experience, no, it's not. There's a reason the church was established. There's a reason that there are seven sacraments that are contained within that church. And there's a reason why over the years of schism and reformation and and other things that have torn away at the integrity of the original system of Christianity. But understand, in the course of that historical subtraction from the original intent, something was lost. And I I think that's by design. I truly would say that this is what evil does. It manipulates and it distorts, and then it makes people comfortable with the distortion so that we can continue to perpetuate it. And that has led to an overall societal apathy spiritually, and that's the biggest thing. Um, and when you're vulnerable, then anything that you do that might not fall within the umbrella of acceptability as far as religion is concerned, that makes you even more vulnerable. So a lot of people think, well, what about, you know, like, 
tarot cards and, you know, Ouija boards and practicing witchcraft or magic or, you know, getting involved in the occult and stuff like that. You know, that's what's causing it. A lot of people say that's what's causing it. And I say, no, that's not what's causing it. What's causing it is that people who are spiritually weak are dabbling in those things. Strong spiritual people that are spiritually strong are impervious to that. You know, the occult. No, no dabbling in the occult is going to affect them. It has. It only comes in through vulnerability, through weakness, and that that starts with apathy. So, I would say that's that's the number one thing. The second biggest thing, and this is a very controversial one, and I know a lot of your listeners will probably be very um, upset with this, but um, curses. They are real, and even if you say it's self-fulfilling prophecy, it's like telling a person that you know who believes in curses that they've been cursed, and that's enough to do it, even if it's some kind of placebo effect. It does not matter; it's irrelevant. What matters is that belief is more important to people than reality. We see that all the time because we create personal fictions for ourselves. We fictions about our own life story and start to believe it. And we get very upset when people challenge those perceptions. That, that you, you see that in, outside of you know spirituality. So it doesn't really matter whether or not curses exist or not, although I would argue that they do. What matters is it is a big factor in this work. And so I would say the second largest cause of this is when a person has been attacked spiritually by somebody who knows how to um, initiate such an attack. So someone being cursed by someone else, essentially. Yes, yes. Using witchcraft, uh, dark witchcraft. I want to make that that distinction because I am good friends with many witches and they would never even think about doing something of that nature with their skill. It's it's really a type of malevolent activity. What would you say to somebody who is skeptical? Our personal belief on this podcast, and when I say our, I'm talking about myself, is that the mind is incredibly powerful. And the only thing that you need to believe something is to believe something, essentially. But what would you say to somebody that is, that is skeptical, hears this and is like, no way. I don't believe any of that. I don't know if there really is much to say about that other than to just perhaps explain the way I, I look at it and say, you know, more along the lines to elaborate on what you just said. The mind is a powerful thing and our beliefs do matter. And whether or not they are beliefs that you share, understand that within the realm of the of experience that that person's going through, their beliefs are the only rules that they play by. Everybody has their own world. Everyone's created their own system of rules to follow. And that diversity creates the um, proclivity for certain types of things to happen. And so one can only heal someone according to the rules that they themselves follow. So whether or not you believe that demons are real is irrelevant. Whether or not you believe – actually, I would even go far further than that. I would say whether or not demons actually do exist or not is irrelevant. As long as someone believes them, they exist. And as long as someone believes that exorcism is what heals them, exorcism is real. And nothing outside of that framework is going to work for them. So if it works, what's the problem? The, you know, A demon exists in the context to what 
pop culture believes a demon is to exist. I, I, I don't see any value in that. All that matters is really working within a person's belief system, accessing that belief system, and giving them the means to get better through that belief system. And that's essentially what religion is. It doesn't matter what anyone else believes about it. All that matters is what you believe about it. And if that brings you healing, all the power to you. And why not use that tool? You're obviously very open about this. Are other religions, speaking in a broad sense, do they also perform this? But is it more secretive or is this more isolated to you guys? I mean, I would say that it is... It is not practiced anywhere near enough. And a lot of that has to come from the fact that there's just not a lot of experience within uh, Christianity uh, in the conventional circles to, to, to really build upon a ministry where this is better offered. Now, you do have some groups that do do it outside of the Catholic Church, of course. You've got charismatic churches. You've got Pentecostals that, that are not typically afraid to use um, – what they call the charismatic gifts. And some people do have, you know, abilities that those churches believe are inspired by the Holy Spirit to, um, to help others. And healing is one of those gifts. Um, and so there's the laying on of hands and there's, there's, there's deliverance ministry. You'll see sometimes churches that do deliverance ministry. Um, but, you know, overall, there's nowhere near enough that are skilled in the work. And sometimes those deliverance ministries can actually make things worse if they, if they don't follow the correct protocols or, you know, don't have the right experience in, in knowing what they're dealing with. And there are even, and I'm, I say this very cautiously because I don't want to get any, anybody in trouble, but there are even Roman Catholic institutions that send me people secretly. Because they know they're not going to be able to get them the help that they need, and they know that if they send them to me, their chances are going to be a lot better at getting healed. What generally happens to the person afterwards? It, typically, there is a moment where, you know, it, it sort of always happens in stages. So initially, when, when the exorcism begins, or right before it begins, the person is seized. They can't move, they can't talk, um, and then they start to lose their ability to communicate with you in any capacity, and they typically black out. They will almost always have no memory of anything. And, and I'm talking about possession here. I'm not talking about um, oppression or obsession. These these things can be handled with minor exorcism where the person is aware of everything going on the whole time. It's only in full-blown demonic possession that they tend to lose complete consciousness, have no memory of anything. Then, um, as they're being seized, um, we will begin the rites. And then as the rite begins, they will go through a series of where there's a battle between the exorcist and the, the, the malignant uh, intelligence. And you're, you're fighting it back and forth. The more prayers and, and sacramentals, the more it fights you back. And at this point, when the victim speaks, it's not them speaking to you it's a very different voice um it's almost always you know a animalistic kind of voice something that would be typical that you would see in the movies of a of a demon um there's a grumbling um there's a hissing a foaming at the mouth sometimes um and and of course a lot of vulgarity and screaming and and growling um you know everything that again, would be to be expected. 
And as you go through the prayers and the use of holy water, what you're looking for is what seems to agitate that demonic presence the most. And you, once you find whatever that is, you, you keep applying it. Eventually, it gets to a point where it starts to weaken. Then you can get its name. Once you have its name, you start to have a little bit of control over it. And then um, from there, you you work on eliminating it, removing it, um, eradicating it. Uh, and then again, it will it will eventually get so weak that it just sort of it loses its ability, its cohesion, and and ability to control the victim. And then the victim will will just go completely still. And you, at this point, will gently wake them up as if they're waking up from a dream. And uh, typically they'll be sore, but they will, they will be, they will have, they will usually report a sense of internal peacefulness. They will report that they feel good. Um, just sometimes sore, again, because it's, Physically, they've been fighting us, and tip, sometimes we usually have to have two or three men holding them down, um, or even have had to use restraints to protect them from getting injured, or even us from getting injured. I've had clients that have grabbed for guns before to try to shoot us. It's dangerous work, even outside of whether or not you believe in demons. It's it's dangerous work. Um, so there's, you know, you have to take precautions, uh, but they will typically, you know, report that they feel better, and then they'll, you know, they'll slowly come out, come back, and then we sit them up, we give them a little water, we give them a chance to rest, and then at that point they go under um, observation, and uh, we 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 continue to communicate with them to see are they getting better or are they staying the same or are they falling back into it again. And then if they start falling back into it again, or if they start, you know, basically maintaining a status quo, but they're still not feeling normal, then we repeat it again after everybody's gained their strength back, which is usually, I tend to not do more than one exorcism a week uh, on the same person. We already addressed a couple of the questions that listeners sent us. Let me ask you at least one more that I saw that we didn't cover already. Um, Are the prayers generally in Latin? Or are they in English, or what language will you generally say them in? I use English. I use the vernacular. Um, there are people that sometimes think that the Latin's more powerful because it is a liturgical language. It's 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 got a more ancient connection, and there's something to be said for that. Remember, we are ultimately dealing with archetypes and the removal of archetypes, or the replacing of archetypes. These are all symbols for an internal. Um, non-corporeal process, really. Um, and so, you know, the, the, our entire mind works on the basis of an archetypal language, and so it responds very well to symbols that, um, you know, reflect the integrity of those archetypes. And so Latin definitely is an archetypal language because of its liturgical history and its connection to the church. Um, but there's also something to be said for the vernacular. Now, the Holy Nicolaitan Catholic Church has a, a, a history in both East and West. There's a, there's a lot of us that's very Roman Catholic, but there's also a large part of us that's very Russian Orthodox. And in Orthodoxy, the liturgical language has always been the language of the people. Um, so I think there's a, there's value in the person's psyche. Maybe that's part of my psychology background coming through, but there's value in the person's psyche hearing something that they can understand. Is it mainly people? This is another one from Kim. Is it mainly Christians or other religious people, or have you dealt with non-religious people that have been possessed? Oh, 
I've dealt with just about every um, background you can imagine. In fact, one of the cases we're looking at right now is a Hindu couple. Um, they are here in Atlanta, um, and they go to the Hindu temple, Hindu, um, and they went to their um, their the leader at, of, at their temple, and they basically referred them to us. Um, there is a, a type of exorcism that exists almost in every exorc- in every religion. Um, but overall, I would say that very few know how or have access to those rights. Uh, last one, Tony Higdon sent us this one. From beginning to end, what is the average time it takes for a successful exorcism? Well, typically the, the, the solemn rite of exorcism lasts about two to three hours. Um, and... In that time, you usually have enough to go through all of the pro, uh, the procedural stages that I referred to. You know, where they come in, they're seized, and then there's a conflict between the the malignant presence and the exorcist, and then eventually there's a strengthening, I mean, a weakening rather of the presence to the point that um, the victim seems to fall into what is like a a peaceful sleep, and then you gently wake them up, and then they're feeling better. That usually can take place every time within a two- to three-hour period. But that doesn't mean just because you had that one victory, that doesn't mean that it's gone forever. You you still have to assess the person and then go by you know what the family members are reporting. Again, a lot of these cases, there's external disturbances that other family members start to feel too. So that's very important to see if that subsides or if that worsens. That you know gives us some information to work with. And then um, if it's not completely gone, then we start the whole process over again. Usually the next week, we do it again. Um, and we continue this until it's gone, which, again, is not a very efficient thing when you think about it because they, we're literally getting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases coming into us, you know, on a regular basis. But, you know, just to solve one case can be, you know, all the work that you do for several months. Um, so, again, it's, it's difficult because there's such a need for more people doing this work and just not enough people out there that can't. What's the best movie about an exorcist? <laughs> I think Anthony Hopkins, The Right, is the best one I've seen. I think that was the most accurate in terms of, of portrayal. Of when there was always exaggerated things like the contortions that she was doing um, in that movie. I've never seen anybody move quite like that. Um, but, I, but there is contorting. There is like they, they can't move their fingers or their, their fingers will go all the way back. And they stay there fixed in a, in a static position. Um, so, again, these are like exaggerations of the real thing. But um, overall, as far as the story, as far as it was portrayed, um, I thought that was the best movie I've seen on the subject. If you watch The Exorcist, though, do you like it or do you – like what do you think of that kind of the, the famous movie about it? Oh, I, I mean as far as like a fictitious rendition, I think that that probably was – I mean I guess I, I should have probably prefaced this by saying what I like about each one because I do love The Exorcist. I just don't think it's as accurate of a portrayal as The Right was. So I tend to like The Right more because of its accuracy. Um, you know, The Exorcist was more dramatic, definitely more horror-based, particularly with the, the, the second version that they came out with. That's pretty much all I got, man. Is uh, anything coming up or anything else that people should know? Or 
Well, um, you know, as far as uh, as far as my work goes uh, in the in public interest, there's another uh, Ghost Adventures on Travel Channel coming up. I think this season, sometime this season, um, where okay. we had a really good case, and uh, I really encourage people if they like my work to watch that episode. It's a definitely one of the better ones I think uh, that uh, we've shot. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, as far as for me, I'm just doing the work, you know, just uh, doing what I can with the resources that we've got to help as many people as possible. Fortunately, m- most of the time, you know, you don't need to jump into exorcism. In fact, almost never really. Um, most of the time we just, uh, say a few prayers. We get them back on track with whatever church they belong to. Uh, or, you know, we, um, Sometimes we'll perform the sacrament of unction, which is another uh, sacrament of the sick is the common terminology that's used today in the Catholic Church. And that tends to do the trick in most cases. Um, you know, exorcism as a practice is, I think people think that I'm just out there, you know, performing exorcisms every day. It just does not work like that. You know, we're, we, we almost never have to perform them. And I, I'm thankful to that. But people do need spiritual help. And so... You know, we're available for the the many possibilities that can come to us and to try to get them back on track. So, um, you know, that's what we're doing. That's what we're, we're, that's what we're, what we're here for. And, and hopefully more and more people will utilize those services. I want to thank Brian so much for joining us. If you want to connect with him, learn more about exorcism, learn more about the Nicolaian Catholic Church, we have linked to him on our social media accounts. We're profoundly pointless on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. No matter what you thought of that interview, whether you believe or you don't believe, skeptic, whatever, I think there is an important message in there that is something that we have talked about on other episodes where we talked with a Reiki healer, we talked with a psychic, we talked with a tarot card reader, and there's a common theme that goes through a lot of that, and that's that idea that it doesn't really matter if it exists or not. If you believe in it, it's real to you. Okay, so now let's go ahead and give John Shaw a call, and we're going to call him 30 minutes ahead of time just to see if he's game time ready. Okay, so he did not answer on the first call. Unbelievable. I am. Are you kidding me? This is going to be the. I'm going to go out on a limb and say this is the episode that puts us on the map. I feel like you've said that um, many times. I have to stay positive because if I actually think about what I'm doing, I, I, I probably will just cry. Okay. Well, that, I, that, that's fair. Um, how do you feel about restaurants that put funny words on bathrooms? Like they don't just put men and women. They put something else. How do you feel about that? I guess I never really pay attention. If I have to go to the bathroom, I'm not really looking at, if it says something funny, right? Like, just put men and I, women on there. I don't see why. Why you like? I'm not gonna come back to your restaurant and think it's creative and quirky because you changed the names on the on the on the restrooms. I, I don't know if I necessarily care so much about that, but I I do I do care more about like when a restaurant like the Impossible Burger from from Burger King. Oh, here we go. <laughs> No one gives a shit. See, I can't even rant about it when you make me laugh before I go into my rant. Well, let's hear your rant now, even though I know it, you don't understand the basic concept of it. Just see if you can sum it up in five words. 
Because because it's 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 people. Okay, that was five words of stuttering. So then we go ahead and we're gonna skip the rant and move right into your first segment. See, look at see now you're making fun of my speech impediment, you son of a bitch. <laughs> you should have stuttered a little bit there. It would have been better. What? Here's the thing. When I called you at one forty, and we were supposed to do it at two, I called you early just to see if you were game time ready, which you weren't. What were you doing in the time between one forty and two o'clock? Uh, I was probably playing with my child. That's legitimate as long as that's not code for something else. It is not code for something else. I I was ready at – well, once again, I missed your calls for some reason. I don't know why, but I was ready at 4.58 Eastern Standard Time. What time? 4.58 Eastern Standard Time. Okay, so if you were going to be playing, let's say, a sporting event and the event started at 5 o'clock, you would walk on – you would show up at the arena at 4.58? That's not being ready. That's not game time ready. Listen, I, I can't make any excuses as to why I, I would rather spend time with my, my one-year-old daughter than talk to you. I'm sorry. Okay, fair enough. Uh, let's move on. What's your segment? <laughs> All right, so this one this one should be easy, but I, I want to know what, what you would choose. Candy corn or jelly beans? Jelly beans. Thank God. There are, do you know there's a, a large population of candy corn eaters out there, and I can't stand any of them. I don't understand it. It's despicable candy. It should not be around. I don't think that there are is a large population. I think candy corn is one of those things where only because other people make fun of it, where 90% of the population hates it and doesn't understand why anybody else is doing it, the 10% of people who like candy corn stick to it simply because they're being insulted because of it. They don't like it either. They're just going to they're gonna be stubborn and hold their ground and say, no, candy corn is good. It's like Peeps at Easter. Nobody likes Peeps at all. But yet, they're still there and you have the occasional person, person that is like, oh yeah, I like Peeps. No, you don't because no one likes Peeps and no one likes candy corn. Fair enough. What's your ne- Let's move on. A traditional egg roll or an Asian corned beef egg roll? Don't even know the difference. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, all right, well, then you still got to choose one, and then I'll explain the difference. Traditional egg roll, then. So apparently in, in Detroit, corned beef Asian or Asian corned beef egg rolls uh, they're like coney dogs here, apparently. Apparently, they're like the thing. I just had my first one two days ago, and though my arteries are clogged, uh, they're delicious. So if anyone's on the fence about having an, a corned beef uh, egg roll, do it. It's a lot better than what you think. Well, I'm really glad you brought that up. Why? Learn to Learn to hear sarcasm. Was that sarcasm? I don't know. Was it? <laughs> uh, and then uh, water slide or slip and slide? Which one are you choosing? Well, technically a slip and slide is a water slide, right? I don't know what the technical definition of a water slide is going to be. But if you're sliding on water, I would assume that anything is a water slide. I mean, you get pavement wet enough, you could do that. That, that wasn't my question. You're not supposed to be the little twerp you are. 
usually you're just supposed to answer. Well, they're the same thing. There's no difference between a water slide and a slip and slide. They're the same thing. There's That's a like, huge difference. No, they're not. They're both the same thing. A water God. slide is a slip and slide. Like, like, oh, no, that's not six. That's half a dozen. You're, you're, there, there's a gigantic, this is like you putting a, a non-Halloween movie at number one and then making other people believe it's a Halloween movie. Well known as a Halloween movie, according to Wikipedia as well. We're talking about The Karate Kid, which is a Halloween movie, because one of the most iconic scenes in that movie is of him dressing up as a shower curtain, and there's the first big fight is at the Halloween dance. That is a Halloween-themed movie, but moving on, there isn't a difference between a water slide and a slip and slide. A slip and slide can be a water slide, but a water slide isn't necessarily a slip and slide. By trademark, a slip and slide is a either a tarp or an inflatable uh, uh, liner that you put a hose on and you slide on the ground. A water slide is something, uh, a piece of plastic, or it could be fiberglass that is suspended in the air that you slide around or down. They are two different things. Okay. Well, if you're going to use those technical definitions, I can answer that question based on technical definitions. But don't just throw out two really vague terms that mean the exact same thing and expect people to know the difference. I'm going water slide. Because that involves much less running. You can just walk to the top of it and go down. You have to get a running head start. only person that, and you're a part of this podcast, anyone that is listening to this podcast right now is going, has Nick never been on a slip and slide? Because there's clearly a difference. I know what a slip and slide is. Like I said before, a slip and slide can be a water slide, but a water slide is not necessarily a slip and slide. Those are two different things. Anyways, we're moving on. <laughs> I'm moving on. I want to, we're going to give, uh, though there were a lot of trolls that seemed uh, trolling us on social media, uh, at least a, f- a couple of them. Uh, I wanted to give the social media shout out to Sue Rao, who uh, we posted. If anyone's a football fan, you know what the Detroit Lions went through a couple weeks ago. And through some of the negative comments uh, on our Twitter uh, posting, she just put be happy, period, and left it at that. So I wasn't sure if she was basically throwing the hammer down and like telling everyone to shut up or like just you know, peace, love, and harmony, and, like, just telling everyone that football is only a game. It doesn't really even matter. Yeah, I hate it when people do that kind of stuff, and they just high-hand you. You know, like, you're talking about anything, and somebody will say, well, there's kids dying and blah, 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 so don't worry about it. I have no idea, but Sue Rao, if you listen, appreciate the comment, but next time, maybe use a few more words. Or she just punked us completely. Okay, the top five that we're looking at, is top five scary things that you have to do in life. What's your number five? Going to the dentist. That's a good one. Wow. Yeah. I totally thought you were going to rip me for that, and you were going to say, no one's afraid to go to the dentist. No, everyone's afraid to go to the dentist. The only thing I would criticize is that it actually should be higher on the list. Yeah, probably. uh, um, I have two on here that I know you're going to – just rip apart. So we'll we'll wait for those. But uh, what's your number five? Parallel parking in front of people. <laughs> yes, I just hate parking in front of anyone. Just regular parking. Um, what's your number four? I I have uh having to kill insects, but with the intent of like 
just really discovering them at all. Because nobody likes insects. From spiders to praying mantises, they're all creepy as fuck. Have you ever killed a praying mantis? I hope not. No, but they're just creepy, lanky fuckers that, you know, you're sitting there having a beer. Next thing you know, there's one on the tree branch above you. You didn't even know how it got there. Are you going to kill a bug if it's outside? Like, if it's in your house, it's fair game. Like, you invade my territory, you know, I have to protect my family. But, I mean, if I'm outside, I mean, you know, I usually, I, I don't, I try not to bother with them. Yeah, I agree with that. What, what, what's, like, how far away from the house? At what point do you feel like, all right, buddy, you're within the three-foot zone, five, couple yards? Like, where are you, where does your house begin, do you feel like, and you're going to go ahead and kill a bug? I'd probably say if, if I had to, if I had to put like a perimeter, I'd say probably like 10 to 15 feet out, you know, from the, from the walls. That's, kind a, of little, thing. that's a little far. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, it's not that far, but you know, it's only three yards or whatever, but it's fine. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to go arm's length. Arm's length from the house is any, the bug terror, the bug killing is fair game if it's been arm's length of the house. Otherwise you got to leave it alone. I, I will say there there is one insect that I I'm scared like I just I want nothing to do with it and it's a cockroach. Oh, you won't even kill it if it's in your house. No, because I'm I don't know what the word is, maybe a sissy, but somebody when I first moved to Florida told me that they they told me this horrific story that they hit the cockroach and it was pregnant and all these little cockroaches oh, went dude, everywhere. I would say the cockroach is the animal as well that like, ooh, I got to make sure I get this sucker. I mean, I, I still, even when I have like a house spider, I, I'm hesitant on killing it because I'm worried that like I'm going to squish it. And then you ever see those videos like on I don't want to think social, about this. On social media where like this. they squish it and then all like the little spiders run up their arms. Like that is scary as fuck. I've never seen that. I have no intention of ever watching that kind of thing. Uh, and my number four is getting on an airplane. Okay, I mean, I, I think that's like a, I think that's like an older fear. Uh, but maybe, maybe there's still, you know, maybe a lot of people still are afraid to get on an airplane. I don't know. I no, but I only have the fear at a very specific time from when I pass the ticket check, when you like last give them your ticket. To when I get on the plane. It's only basically while I'm going down that little boarding walk that I'm scared of it. Other than that, I have no problems. <laughs> Why that particular time? Because that's the last time where you could really get off the plane without probably getting arrested for some reason. And so that's where, like, that's the back out moment where I'm like, okay, I got this feeling I shouldn't get on it. I shouldn't get on it. And then I get okay. on the plane and fly and everything's fine. You actually explained that quite well. I, I don't have a follow-up. That's that's actually very – that's a good one. That's one that I wouldn't even have thought of. Uh, what's your number three? Uh, being anywhere where there are clowns. <laughs> yeah. Not – is it because of the clowns or just because generally the clowns are going to be in a bad area? Like nobody <laughs> wants to really be at the state fair – and nobody wants to be at a crappy kid's birthday party. Is it because of the clowns specifically or because of the places that the clowns are at? Well, first off, I always wondered, like, what kind of people would hire random strangers to dress up as clowns and come to their kid's birthday parties, for one, uh, without doing any kind of checking? 
Uh, and then two, clowns just like they're just they're just creepy. Like I I don't know how else to like explain it. Like I don't like, like you kind of just said. I don't want to be going to the state fair. And like turn the corner and there's just a fucking clown like standing there. I'm gonna tackle it out of pure, you know, scared straightness. That's rational, seems like. Um, wait. Is it my turn or is it your turn? You're on no yeah, it's your number three. Going to a place where you know no one. Okay, uh, I'm kind of surprised because I will give you a compliment that you're actually a pretty good, like, extrovert. Um and you can usually make friends wherever you go, but so I'm kind of surprised that that's on your list. Well, it's changed. Once you become married and have kids, you lose the ability to talk to people outside your immediate circle. Like, I don't know how to have normal conversation with anybody I don't talk to on a weekly basis. It's just awkward. Yeah, that's actually quite true, isn't it? That Yeah, you're, you're right on that. For people who aren't married or, or younger audience... It's going to happen to you. Once you pass like 32 and have a wife or a significant other and kids, you cannot communicate with people on the outside world. It's incredibly awkward. Like you lose the ability to do that. So basically what he's saying, everybody, is uh, uh, don't have kids and don't get married and life is good. Pretty much. That's the way to go. Uh, what's your number two? Uh, so my number two and one are like, you know, play the violin for me because they're, they're prototypical and they're sad. But, uh, number, my number two is being alone. Aww. What, what, why are you afraid of being alone? Are you afraid of the thoughts in your own head? Or are you well, afraid that people are going to forget you? Or what's the reason? So kind of what you said just a second ago about, you know, you don't, once you get married and all this, you know, you kind of lose the ability to, to to talk to people. It's it's almost, you know, I think everyone's had that point in their life where you're you're that single person and that's all you do is you socialize and you go out and you try to meet somebody. And hopefully you do. And then, you know, then you live happily ever after. But it's like you don't realize how lonely you really are through all those single days until you actually meet somebody. And, like, I couldn't imagine being 32, like, and just going home from work every day alone. You know what I mean? Like, having nobody there. Wow. Way to, way to crush anybody listening to this to alone. That's, uh... No, that's, that, that's not my point. I mean, you know, I could also say, like, another example, maybe, maybe a better example is, like, uh, you know, say you're, like, mid-80s and you lived with somebody doesn't have to be a spouse it could just be a, a you know your son or daughter or whatever and like either you or them pass away and or, or leave and like now you're left alone after having not known being alone for so many years right like nobody wants to go through that yeah I, no i agree with you i just think this is getting way too serious so i'm gonna go with my number two which is bugs just bugs in general i'm not afraid of killing them i don't really have a problem with killing them when they're in the house specifically like i mentioned earlier within arm's length of the house but i just don't like them in general like i just don't want to see them i i do not disagree with you can we can we at least uh can we agree also that the cockroach would be the number one most hated bug oh yeah yeah i don't okay. even like i, I think that's pretty unless you get like a black widow spider that's because that's one that's like 
All right, a cockroach isn't going to kill you. It's gross. You don't want it around. But a black widow, like, ooh, you messed that up. You got problems. <laughs> I don't think I have to worry about those in Michigan. Oh, you Maybe gotta, I do. Probably. Um, I don't know. That you got to worry about them in places that I've lived, and you got to worry about them because they will. I mean, they can kill you. I think. I have no idea. I just assume that they could. Um, also, wolf spider, very dangerous. Don't mess with those as well. What's your number one? All right, Jack Hanna. Is he still? Uh, my oh, wait, one... no, that's the other guy that died. Anyway, moving on. Uh, my number one is dying, but not necessarily the, the, the point of dying and going, you know, to heaven or hell or whatever you believe in, but it's like that two to four minutes or whatever where, like, you are dying. Like, if you're being strangled or if you're drowning, you know, like, that's what I'm talking about. I understand that. I mean, for me, I want that to be the worst experience. Like, I, w- I want to know what dying is really like. Like, I-, I don't mind if I get eaten by a bear or something horrible because then you're going – that's the last thing that you're going to ever experience. Really the biggest life moment, right? Because you don't remember being born. The other only other thing is death. You might as well at least experience death. Like, I don't want to go quietly. I want to get, like I said, eaten by a bear and know exactly what dying is like. I, I don't have anything to say. I mean, I I guess that's part of the reason why I put it at number one is I I don't really have any intent nor really want to feel a bear eating me alive. But it's going to be one of the biggest moments of your life. Wouldn't you want to experience what it's like? I mean, only if I can make a pact with, like, you know, anyone that, is going to decide anything on the afterlife that, hey, sure, I'll get eaten by a bear, but all I can feel is the pressure. I don't want to feel any of the pain as he's ripping my limbs apart. No, I think you go the whole thing. Then you can, you know exactly what it's like. All right, what's your number one? Buying a house. Okay, I don't know if I would have put that as high as you did, but uh, why is it number one? That's basically you're putting your whole financial future on the line when you're buying a house. Like, that's the most expensive thing that I think most people are going to buy. If you buy the wrong house, if the market turns, if you buy the wrong location, if there's a fire, a flood, an earthquake, tsunami, Godzilla attack, anything like that, I mean, that's a nerve-wracking experience. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I, I think we both can can attest to it since we both have done it. You uh, a couple more times than I have, so you have more experience, but... uh I wouldn't say the process of buying the house or buying a house to me is scary. It's, you know, who like you're buy like who you're buying it with. Like I think that's where you could get fucked. But if you have like a good partner or if you're just buying it alone, you know, I I think you're fine then. But I I think if you go into a blind or or you know, you're going into it with somebody that that you don't trust, that's where you could get fucked. Like oh hey, taxes are going up $400, uh, you know, starting next month right or something like that and you don't have somebody that's there with you in it and you're like left to do it all alone that's where you get fucked yeah i agree i was i was more nervous about buying a house with my wife than i was about actually marrying her say i would say that that you're probably correct i mean i would say i was probably more nervous signing on the house on our house than i was my first child being born yeah i'm telling you it's a nerve-wracking experience what's in your honorable mention but like, I don't like drinking at the bar alone. Oh, that's I don't a great think, time. But I don't think that's 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 not really being scared. But I guess I am scared of drinking alone. So maybe I'm more of like a socialite when I drink. Does that make any sense? I, don't you drink alone at your house all the time? Uh, I wouldn't say all the time. 
this is this is purely like going out when you're going out. Like I, I, I like to be in social settings. I don't like to be that creepy old guy, you know, at the end of the bar that's just drinking his life away. That I, I'm scared. Uh, I hope I never have to be that person. You know what I mean? Like, and I hope I'm never that person. I mean, I think um, maybe a little maturity in your life would help you out a little bit. It's okay, man. Maybe a little <laughs> self-discovery. Maybe you reflect on things a little bit more. I think that'd be a good. Uh, I think that'd be a growing opportunity for you. I, I also have. Uh, I'm uh, being scared of turning into one of your parents. Yeah, it's. Yeah, I can see that. That's already kind of happening. <laughs> Yeah, tell me about it. Uh, that's yeah. Uh, for for anybody, I think we all experience that. But uh, you know, that's 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 terrible to think about. What do you have? I got nothing. Oh, all right. Well, fair enough then. Okay, that's going to go ahead and do it for this episode of the Profoundly Pointless Podcast. I want to thank you guys so much for joining us. If you get a chance, like, download, subscribe, share. We love hearing from you guys. We love interacting on social media. I really just think it makes the show, the show so much more interesting, and we're going to try to do that a little bit more moving forward where we're going to try to highlight some of the listeners' questions. The only problem that we have with that is it requires us to be more organized, something that we have consistently failed to do. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.